The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and participants during this episode are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of the American College of Physicians, the editors of Annals of Internal Medicine, or the institutions that the speakers are affiliated with unless so identified. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on-call. And that specifically, if they perceived that there was time pressure while they were doing their like routine care, then it was associated with decreased quality of care. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call features an article from November 2021 titled Getting Through COVID-19, Keeping Clinicians in the Workforce. Joining us is the first author of that paper, Dr. Eileen Barrett, who has both her MD and MPH. She's an associate professor in the Department of Internal Medicine and the Division of Hospital Medicine at the University of New Mexico and is the current chair of the ACP Board of Regents. We hope you will find this conversation useful and interesting. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I really loved the article that you and your colleagues wrote back in 2021, getting through COVID-19, keeping clinicians in the workforce. And while some of these things were specific to COVID, they're actually more generalized to where we are today and where we were 10 years ago. And I thought that I'd like to start out with recognizing the importance of time. It's something that I've always been very concerned about. So maybe you could talk about how you and your colleagues thought about this uh, and how you continue to think about what time means to physicians in both outpatient and inpatient practice. Yeah, and thank you for highlighting that because I think that that is something that has so much face validity and yet people have a sometimes have a difficult time sort of explaining within their organization, since most of us are employed, um, why that is something that is going to be so important. So it did mean that it was so important to us to be able to mention it and to highlight it um, when we developed this list of 10 things that we wanted our organizations to do to keep us in the workforce. And, uh, And I think that when we're talking about time that we should restate the obvious, which is that it is something that the patients, of course, notice, but also our experience matters as well. When we're thinking of time, I, I, there's a couple different um, papers that I often think of. One of them, because I am a hospitalist, is a paper that um, that came out in, uh, it was actually in, uh, in JAMA, and I believe it was in 2014, where they were looking at the census. And as the census went up over a certain amount, then you saw the length of, length of um, stay in the hospital. I see you nodding that that mm-hmm. increased as well. And because that is to some degree, it's a proxy for workload, but it also is a, a proxy for time. Our time is limited. And so I, I I say that because the literature is on our side, and so it's important that we just talk about it. So in the hospital medicine, we think of time, I think we think of just, there always is a lot of work to do no matter where we work, and it is good work. Um, and there always will be 
some to some degree that time is a limited resource and we have to use it wisely. When we also, of course, are thinking about um, in the uh, in the clinic, although I think that the lessons apply no where we are, no matter where we are, that um, that there is some data, and the paper that I'm most familiar with is one that was in the annals in um, in uh, 2009. Mark Linzer was one of the authors, and it was something that really defined how I thought about time in the workplace because they were looking at the working conditions in primary care. And although they looked at a lot of different dimensions, one of the things specifically that they looked at was how people perceive time pressure. And that specifically, if they perceived that there was time pressure while they were doing their like routine care, then it was associated with decreased quality of care. And that to me was a real wake up because it, it intuitively made sense to me. It was something that I had a challenge um, articulating in the workplace in part because I knew that my colleagues would, and I wanted to as well, that we would always do the best thing no matter what it took to try to take care of the patients. But as we know, we will only ever rise to the level of our systems, right? We, excuse, we, and that means that we will always fall to the level of our systems too. So thinking of time that there's a lot of dimensions and a lot of um, complications to it in this paper, how we were thinking of it is just, just practically, we know the data is there. We just want to believe people that they need time to be able to take good care of the patients, to preserve the patient experience, to make good decisions. And also because people matter, that we wanted them to feel like they have enough time. I know that that's a, a sort of a broad introduction, and I know that there's a couple other dimensions of it that we could absolutely talk about. I wonder if maybe I should pause there. I'm so glad you brought up my friend Mark Linzer, because he and I talked about this early in the century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that he points out is the importance of schedule control. Like, yes. I know a couple of women who left uh, a workplace because they were not allowed to uh, come in at nine rather than eight in the morning on an occasional basis when they need to take their uh, kids uh, to school or they need to take their kids to a doctor's appointment. And this is not just true for women. This is also true for men. And one of the things that he pointed out that one of the things that leads to uh, distress uh, in the workplace is when you feel like you have no control over that schedule. Have you thought about that? Yeah, I have. And, um, and I think that the the specific issue that you brought up about um, about women, I think, is really complicated and that it's um, and that it's very common. And I am grateful that in the last few years that we're talking about it more than we had before. And I think particularly the pandemic, well, the data shows that the pandemic demonstrated that there were all these extra burdens on women physicians when we're talking about the workforce. And those mm-hmm. often had to do with with child care. But of course, it's not solely only on on women who are doing mm-hmm. childcare, right? And it's also um, not solely about childcare. I really appreciate Mark Linzer's work in this as he would talk about the idea of having some control. And I think that his work with Sarah Poplow, both of them at Hennepin County has been really remarkable, sort of helping us define and measure the things that matter to people and that can predict burnout. Um, I think that it's a nice extension of the work by um, Maslock also too, that mm-hmm. we're, that's one of the features that she demonstrates as well as this idea of control. I think that one of the things that it is, is another thing that has face validity. People can really challenge with, be challenged by operationalizing that. I think in my own practice, one thing that I saw, although I'm a hospitalist now, but when I was a, um, when I was in primary care, that there were often opportunities for flexibility that that people wanted and needed to keep them in the workforce. That that there was some hesitation, and I think that that's natural. But it's nice to know that it works someplace else. So an example I can bring up about um, people 
wanting and needing flexibility and being able to thrive is well, you said a great one about just being able to start clinic later. My own experience was um, when I did primary care was that it wasn't even often. I mean, I think I literally did it once or twice a month that I would come in for afternoon clinic. So I didn't, I had the morning that was not just non-clinical, but it also was off. Um, and then would have my afternoon clinic, have a brief break as though it were lunch. And then I had assigned to me my own MA who um, also wanted to be there at night. And we would see patients in the evening until eight. And it was on an opt-in basis, um, mm -hmm. including for the patients. The patients often loved it because they were people who couldn't, who, who would otherwise be missing work. And we also loved it because we were meeting a need. I think, I think having the flexibility I thought was great. I also thought that um, sometimes it was just uh, also the clinic was less chaotic because there was only only four of us there. And that was also that sort of felt better for the work. It felt like it was less frenzied. And it also helped cultivate a really nice relationship between the MA I was working with and me. We worked really closely. We, I, I felt like it was the most supportive that I've been in my professional life. And I think similarly, sometimes people struggle to think of that for hospitalists and they classically think of the seven on seven off model, which is easy for the scheduler, hard on the hospitalist. I was really grateful when I had worked someplace where, um, although I have a lot of flexibility now, but someplace where I'd worked where um, what they did was they linked how many, how many days you'd be working in a row was linked to the length of stay so that we decreased the amount of turnover that the patients experienced in their admission, mm -hmm. but people were so much happier in this case to have four days on service instead of seven on seven off. Mm -hmm. So those are just some examples about how we can think about giving people some control for their life events. Can you talk a little bit about the problems of discrimination and harassment? And these are, these are both individuals that are doing that, but there are also policies that do that. Oh yeah. And I think um, we of course can have a really long conversation about how this um, affects the patients. I think maybe for our purposes and because of this article that we'll, with your permission, we'll focus on just the healthcare worker. You know, the data shows that um, there are individual and group characteristics that um, that can define what someone's experience is like in medicine um, as a physician and also as our non-physician colleagues. And uh, specifically that has to do with people who are uh, gender minorities, racial minorities, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, and, and more, anyone who's from a minoritized identity um, that are much, or the more we look into it, the more that we find that they're having these gendered and racialized experiences. And so that can be things that are directly related to their peers it can, uh, and things like the microaggressions, the overt macroaggressions, um, sometimes going to even um, things that have to do with uh, sexual harassment. Uh, the more we look, the more that we find that, it, that it's present and that it also is affecting our learners too. Related to the issue of, of, of our policy, so there's the, the way that someone might treat an individual, but there also is the the policy and the practice. So you had mentioned, um, say, for example, people having flexible schedules so that they can tend to their children's needs. There also is the issue of whether someone's uh, workplace, say, for example, is willing to accommodate what some of those needs are, and what are the ways that we do so on an ad hoc basis. That also, of course, can come up for people who are experiencing, um, uh, who have disabilities, um, which sometimes there are ways that we can accommodate people to keep them in the workforce that we just don't. And then there are ways that we respond, and that can be embedded in our policies to when discrimination happens or harassment. One of the most powerful articles in the Annals of Internal Medicine that I've read um, was one that was called The N-Word. And it was written by a learner. Um, as you can probably tell, it was in the case where a patient had had said mm -hmm. something 
at best described as appalling to this learner. And it is also about how the um, learner, um, how they decided to tell their program and how their, um, their faculty stepped up to have their back um, for what would happen next. And I think that that's a great model for us for how we can step up and support people and then how that should always be backed up with something like a policy. So there was this, I thought, a fantastic article in the annals that was in 2020 that was called Addressing Patient Bias Towards Healthcare Workers, Recommendations for Medical Centers. And one of the reasons why this article is great is because this is really uncommon, but what they had done was that the appendix is your sample policy that you can just cut and paste and then adapt it for your own needs and your own institution and organization. Um, so one doesn't have to start from scratch. So the resources are there, what we need is the will. One of the things that you just alluded to is the importance of leadership. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way I always say it is it's the job of the leader to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. They have to do the things and demonstrate the things that make it okay for the rest of the faculty or the residents or the interns to do the same things. So to talk about their own work-life balance, to actually take an afternoon off uh, and demonstrate that and, and have that as an expectation to take their vacations and, and make sure that they're, uh, the people working with them take their vacations, uh, make sure that they're, it is not hard to get coverage. If you need to be off for two weeks in your hospitalist job, is there a nicely accepted way to take care of that? If you're sick, is there somebody who is on call to help you out? And maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'd love to. Although it's, you just talked, I think you spoke to that really, really well. I think that um, if I may to expand a little bit on that, I think that all leaders deserve to be invested in by their organizations to help them do their best to model this. If people feel as though they can't for whatever reason, then I hope that whoever uh, they report to and also that their reports um, also provide them the feedback that it makes the culture better when when people um, demonstrate um, work-life balance, um, when they are transparent about the need for that, when they encourage people to take time off. Um, One of the things that when I was a new faculty that, um, no, no, forgive me, not new faculty, a new attending, that at one point I remember, I think it was during my performance review, that my boss had said, um, I noticed you haven't taken any vacation yet and you don't have anything on the schedule coming up. And I said, um, oh, uh, I just haven't been able to do the planning. You know, your first year out, you know what it's like, right? I haven't been able to plan anything ahead. I had lived across the country from my family, from from where I trained, et cetera. And, um, and I just remember her nodding and saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay, because if you don't identify anything by the end of the week, I'm just going to start choosing weeks for you. <laughs> and um, and I really appreciated that. And as a consequence, that is something that I have tried to tell that story in a lot of venues, um, particularly with um, with my early career faculty. I also share with them what I had read in a book once was that um, when uh, I think it was um, uh, Cheryl Sandberg's book, um, Lean In, that was that at McKinsey, that every person who left who was burned out had unused vacation. Mm-hmm. And so again, it just um, it's something that um, that that we deserve. It's something our families deserve. And even if we, for whatever reasons, feel like we can't pull ourselves away, especially with the blurring of all our work from home, so we can work anywhere, that it is going to be so important that we um, that we role model that for other people. 
I was talking to some junior faculty at another institution, and they were taking the lead in, in our state chapter in trying to provide healthier work situations. And one of the things that I pointed out was a conversation that I had with Ryan Meyer on a previous podcast mm. about the new regulations for writing notes and noting that, that a lot of people have not converted over to the shorter, more reasoning-centered note rather than uh, the ridiculous notes that we were writing for so many years. And this is just an example of administrative burden and yeah. trying to get away from administrative burden. Uh, so maybe you could talk about administrative burden and some of the problems and how that might play into the frustration that clinicians have in the workforce. Yeah, and there's almost too much to say there, right? And um, and I, my goodness, where to start, right? Uh, I love the example that you gave of talking with Ryan Meyer because I feel like that that highlighted again, really that we we want to invest in people to train them for what to do because they want to do the right thing and we need to support them in being able to do so. And if people are spending too much time in their notes, it's likely because they don't know how to do otherwise. And they, you know the maxim that if the first thing you do when you're in a hole is to stop digging. I mean, this is something that sometimes we need to help our peers with, um, with regard to things like documentation burden. Another thing that maybe is related to that that I think is an opportunity that people often don't don't know about is uh, is getting more EMR training. There was a it was a paper in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, I think it was around 2018, where they looked at it was um, programs in California. And there were residency programs where they were randomized to receive the usual training for um, for how to use their EMR. Which for a lot of doctors, it's you're pretty smart and you know how to use a computer. Go right? But in this case, they received the usual training. And then there was um, the residents in the other program had received um, a more intensive training. And their training included what did they need to make the templates more uh, appropriate for their care, right? And so they were spending less time deleting things that they didn't need in their templates and bringing in what they actually used. Also, they were trained on what was um, considered a good note and how to use the EMR. And what they found over time was that when the notes were evaluated by independent observers for quality, they found that the um, the quality was just as good in the notes that were shorter. And the notes that were shorter were in the group that had received that more intensive training um, and had templates that worked for them. But the other thing I thought that was really striking and sort of hidden in the results, and I was a little bit surprised that the authors didn't sort of bring to the fore a little bit more, was that um, the residents on average also finished their notes an hour and 20 minutes a day earlier. And I just think about what could we do with an hour and 20 minutes, right? If, um, I mean, that's a lot. I know that I had worked at my institution for three years before I had received one-to-one um, -one EMR training and it saved me 40 minutes a day. And when we had finished that session, the, the EMR trainer actually had said to me, this is a lot for you for today. Call me back when you're ready to learn more because I think there's more we can do. So it wasn't trying to show me more bells and whistles. It was what was the bells and whistles I needed. So that's just one example. So let's just finish up with mental health. Yeah, yeah. And uh, fortunately, there is much less stigma about having access to mental health and using mental health sessions to help you deal with the frustrations uh, that can happen in the workplace. Do you think this is a continuing problem? And what is ACP doing about this? And what do you think we all should be doing about this? 
Yeah. So I think um, if I may back, I heard you say the words frustrations, and I think that that is a good reason for everybody to receive support. I think that it's it's sort of my duty also to say that doctors are and student and medical students are just like everybody else and can have mental health diagnoses, just like physical health diagnoses. So of course everybody deserves care. Like that's the first thing, right? And and so everybody deserves to receive care, and everybody deserves to be supported in receiving care. As a segue from our conversation about admin burden, um, one thing that we can do to decrease administrative burden that has been demonstrated in some places is to provide things, is to expand access and avail accessibility and availability of mental health care in recognition that this is something that um, that medical students and, um, and physicians can benefit from. So there was a really nice paper that was in JGME um, where uh, there was a residency program in West Virginia, where they provided, they scheduled all of their incoming interns for um, mental health care for one visit where that they could opt out of. And what they found was over 90% kept the appointments. And I thought that that was really compelling. Mm -hmm. um, there was another paper that was um, also, also in JGME, although it was a few years earlier, that was um, part of a group out of OHSU, including uh, Mary Moffitt was one of the co-authors, where they actually called it, If You Build It, They Will Come because they looked at what were the resident perspectives on um, having this service and would they use it. So I, I think that that's a nice thing to know that we can decrease the burden of people having to seek the care and seek out the care after maybe things have already become, maybe they're um, depressed or anxious or, or even just burnt out and disillusioned, right? And that what we can do is we can help make it easier for them by having mental health care that is available where they work, can consider things like opt out, and then also can um, certainly consider things that help make it be free to lower these barriers. I heard you mention what, what can be done. I think that those are some nice examples. Some other examples that we saw emerge in the pandemic are the, um, the services that were available for um, free that were on a volunteer basis. Uh, there's a really nice um, resource through ACP on um, that's called the Emotional Support Hub that has had an extraordinary number of hits. And what it is, is exactly that, which is they have resources about connecting with, with mental health care, also about some sort of um, skills that people, uh, skills and tools that people can access to help, to help themselves get sort of help bring more balance, if you will, um, things related to understanding psychological size, psychological safety, maybe managing their anger, their grief, things like that. And then lastly, one of the things I think that ACP is really doing great work in is to try to reduce the barriers that when people, you mentioned stigma and that there can be this real stigma um, when people receive mental health care, or even talk about it. Um, I became really interested in this when um, one of my um, colleagues killed himself and we had, I was in a meeting with him the day before. I was like, is everything okay? Is everything okay? And he went on to take call that night, took great care of the patients, signed out his patients, and then that night killed himself. And I and he had experienced um, discrimination relating related to having depression. I didn't know about that, and there was this real stigma in how people talked about that. So I became interested in this, and um, and the data to show that physicians can have all sorts of um, barriers to receiving mental health care, and one of them is that they fear that it will affect their ability to be licensed or credentialed. So uh, ACP is doing some work related to this, including that there's a toolkit available to help people work within their own organization or with their state medical board to, um, to change those questions that ask about uh, mental health care. We had published a paper um, in, 2000, in March of 2020 about our experience um, in, I live in New Mexico, about working with our medical board to, um, to revise our license so that they didn't ask for like within the last five years, have you had a mental health diagnosis, et cetera. 
Um, most recently in our case in our state, we we have just gotten rid of all questions about mental health and had a statement of support for receiving mental health care. Um, so those are some of the things that ACP is doing that I think um, have been uh, have been really successful. And I think just to go back to our conversation about leadership, I think it's incumbent upon leaders to be aware of uh, the situations that the people who they are serving, because I certainly believe in servant leadership. Yes. And and if you worry about something, just encourage them to, to get help and encourage them to take some time off, uh, which I, I've, I've done in the past. And so we'll take care of the patients, but we have to take care of you. You know, I love that frame. And I think that that should be on the billboard and on the bumper sticker. We'll take care of the patients. You take care of you and we'll take mm-hmm. care of you, right? That's the way to do it. And your point about leadership, there are some recommendations for um, in the suicide prevention, um, in the physician suicide prevention liter- literature about the, the benefits of leaders being transparent about their vulnerabilities and saying if they've had a hard time, but also being transparent about it's all been hard the last few years and just encouraging people to receive care and to take care of themselves. Yeah. Well, Eileen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I hope the people listening will uh, resonate with much of what we say and perhaps uh, be able to be leaders in, and produce change in their own situations. I love to hear that. And um, because, of course, we're all leaders, all physicians are leaders. Yeah, so we should lead from where we stand. Thank you so much for having me and for valuing this content. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This uh, far-ranging discussion about keeping physicians in the workforce revolved around many issues. To me, the most important one is time. Physicians need enough time to provide the proper care. They really want that, and when they are rushed, that creates a dissonance in the goal of being a physician, the goal of taking care of a patient, and what they can actually do. This leads to a lot of distress. The other thing that's really important is when physicians feel like they have no control over their day. Uh, They need to have some control over the hours they work, the number of patients they're seeing to make it a reasonable amount so they can do high-quality work. We also touched on the importance of uh, assistance with mental health. Often our jobs are very stressful. Sometimes our private lives are stressful. Uh, Sometimes we have mental health disorders. All of these should be taken care of in an easy way, in a non-punitive way. And finally, we talked a little bit about trying to make improvements in how we document what we do. Note writing uh, had gotten totally out of control, especially on computers, over the last couple of decades. Uh, With the change in requirements for how we have to write our notes, we can teach our learners and our faculty to write better, shorter notes, spend less time writing their notes, and therefore have more time to themselves. All of these things can improve our ability to keep physicians in the workforce. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Information contained herein should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment. For more episodes, links to CME and MOC, or to view disclosures, visit go.annals.org slash on call 